for the perfections of language, not properly understood, have been one of the chief causes of the imperfections of our philosophy. John Horne took the diversions of Pearly p. 19. The above quote, taken from the diversions of Pearly 1, demonstrate John Horne took's views on language and its relation to philosophical thinking, and anticipate views which would become prominent in 20th century analytic philosophy. In particular the above quote would put one in mind of the work of the later Wittgenstein. There is no evidence that Tuck's work in any way influenced Wittgenstein's philosophy. However, we do know that Tuck's work influenced the philosopher and logician Willard Quine and psychologist B.F. Skinner. Skinner came across Tuck's work in the early 30s when he was a junior fellow at Harvard. Henderson urged me to look at John Horne Tuck's Diversions of Pearly, the book was out of print but I advertised, and several booksellers sent me quotations. I brought two and gave one to Van Quine inscribed verbum sat. Skinner The Shaping of a Behaviorist p. 158 Ibid p. 282. In his autobiography The Time of My Life, Quine recalled Skinner giving him a copy of Took's book. It was particularly in language theory, rather, that Fred opened doors for me. My linguistic interest had run to etymological detail, he put me onto Bloomfield and Jesperson, and gave me an American first edition of John Horne Took. Quine, The Time of My Life p. 110. In this blog post I will discuss the influence that Horn Took's book had on both Quine and Skinner, and what their respective reactions to Took, reveals about their different behaviorist philosophies. Quine and John Horn Took. In 1946 Quine gave a series of lectures on the philosophy of David Hume. In the lecture series he obviously related Hume to the other empiricists and rationalists who were contemporaries and near-contemporaries of Hume. During these lectures Quine discussed the work of John Horne Took, who Quine believed, had made an advance over the British empiricists. When discussing the British empiricists Quine noted that they were all wedded to the idea-idea conception of epistemology. Took's diversions was an attempt to move away from this idea-centric epistemology. Took considered and critiqued the work of John Locke but didn't discuss either David Hume or George Barclay's work. Took argued you could translate Locke's talk of ideas with talk of words and you would increase the clarity and correctness of Locke's philosophy. Quine agreed with Took's assessment of Locke's philosophy, and 30 years later in his paper Five Milestones of Empiricism argued that Took's move away from idea-centric philosophy to an emphasis on words was one of the key milestones in the development of empiricist philosophy. Took's philosophy reduced all discourse to two main categories, nouns and verbs. He argued that one could explain other linguistic phrases such as prepositions, adjectives etc. by analyzing them. Upon analysis he claimed that such words contained a hidden complexity. Thus, for example, took analyzed the preposition for in terms of the underlying notion of cuz. He did this by analyzing an incredible amount of sentences containing the word for and showing how the sentences could all be correctly analyzed by treating for as meaning cuz. Thus Took was satisfied that he could analyze away the preposition for and treat it as a verb. He used similar processes of analysis on a variety of other prepositions, and on adverbs, conjunctions etc. as well as analyzing various different parts of written language to reveal its function. Took also tried to explain how these words evolved over time by examining their etymology. Quine admired what he called Took's the method of abbreviations, Quine lectures on the philosophy of David Hume p. 62. In his divergence Took argued that when trying to understand speech we need to conceive of it as words which are necessary to communicate our thoughts and abbreviations which help with expressing these thoughts clearly. Took argued that there are two sorts of words necessary to the communicating of our thoughts, 
nouns and verbs. Everything else he conceived of as being abbreviations which when analyzed closely will be shown to be either nouns or verbs. His analysis of the word for above is a good example of his understanding his method of abbreviation. In his 1951 Two Dogmas of Empiricism Quine related this method of abbreviations to the verification theory of meaning. Radical reductionism, in one form or another, well antedates the verification theory of meaning explicitly so-called. Thus Locke and Hume held that every idea must either originate directly in sense experience or else be compounded of ideas thus originating, and taking a hint from Tuck we might rephrase this doctrine in semantical jargon by saying that a term, to be significant at all, must be either a name of a sense datum or a compound of such names or an abbreviation of such a compound. So stated the doctrine remains ambiguous as between sense data as sensory events and sense data as sensory qualities, and it remains vague as to the admissible ways of compounding. Quine II Dogmas of Empiricism p. 38. John Locke believed that we begin with simple ideas derived from perception and combine them, somehow, to form complex ideas when thinking. Locke further argued that the words in our language got their meanings by referring to these ideas. What Quine admired about Took's work was that he cut out the middle man so to speak. Took was emphasizing the fact that our words got their meanings in by picking out things and events in the environment. On Took's picture ideas were a theoretically superfluous posit. Every purpose for which the composition of ideas was imagined being more easily and naturally answered by the composition of terms, whilst at the same time it does likewise clear up many difficulties in which the supposed composition of ideas necessarily involves us. Hook Divergences p. 20. Quine asks us to note that we shouldn't read Took's criticism of complex ideas as denying the importance of mental activity, nor should one think that the concept of complex definitions, abbreviations, don't involve mental activity. Rather, Took was just pointing out that ideas as explanatory posits don't do much work in clarifying how we connect stimulation with discourse, Quine lectures in the philosophy of Hume p. 63. In his 1977 paper Facts of the Matter Quine made the point as follows. Let us therefore recognize that the whole idea idea, abstract and concrete, is a frail read indeed. We must seek a firm footing rather in words. The point was urged by John Horne Took only shortly after Hume's time, in 1786. Took held that Locke's essay could be much improved by substituting the word word everywhere for the word idea. What is thereby gained in firmness is attended by no appreciable loss in scope, since ideas without words would have come to little in any event. We think mostly in words, and we report our thoughts wholly in words. Let us then take one leaf from the old-time philosophy and another from John Horne Took. Philosophical inquiry should begin with a clear yes, but with clear words. Facts of the Matter p. 271. In Quine's Five Milestones of Empiricism, 1978, he again, credits Took with emphasizing the importance of words over ideas, arguing that this move was a key milestone in the development of empiricism. The other four milestones Quine discusses are Bentham's emphasis of the sentence having semantic primacy in language over words, Duham's emphasis of the primacy of systems of belief over sentences, his dissolution of the analytic-slash-synthetic distinction which he argues this leads to methodological monism, and his demonstration that there is no first philosophy. I won't here speak of his last four milestones of empiricism, given that the subject matter of the blog is John Horne Took, I will focus on Quine's first milestone of empiricism. Quine noted the following. The first was the shift of attention from ideas to words. This was the adoption of the policy, in epistemology, of talking about linguistic expressions where possible instead of ideas, 
I think of it as entering modern empiricism only in 1786, when, John Horne took wrote as follows, the greatest part of Mr. Locke's essay, that is. All which relates to what he calls the abstraction, complexity, generalization, relation etc., of ideas, does indeed merely concern language. British empiricism was dedicated to the proposition that only sense makes sense. Ideas were acceptable only if based on sense impressions. But took appreciated that the idea idea measures up poorly to empiricist standards. Translated into Took's terms, then, the basic proposition of British empiricism would seem to say that words make sense only insofar as they are definable in sensory terms, five milestones of empiricism p. 68. Quine notes that this approach of Took's leads instantly to problems. The grammatical particles which we use to organize our concepts don't easily reduce to sensory experiences. As we saw above Took tried to avoid this problem by saying that sentences could be reduced to two functions nouns and verbs, thus nouns refer to sensory experiences while verbs say things about these experiences. To work within this austere empiricist framework Took had to explain away grammatical concepts such as if, and, but, there etc. in terms of nouns and verbs. Took justified this approach by giving unpersuasive etymological definitions of these grammatical concepts. Quine was pretty dismissive of Took's attempts to explain the grammatical concepts in terms of nouns and verbs. He argued cogently that Took didn't realize that these concepts were syncategrammatic, they couldn't be defined in isolation but only in context. Quine was largely correct in his argument that grammatical concepts are not definable in isolation. But he didn't sufficiently appreciate the possibility that grammar may be an innate imposition on how we group words together. Quine was working in the logical positivist tradition which worked to reduce our theories to sensory experiences and logical constructions based on sensory experience. While he was correct that grammatical concepts cannot be defined in terms of sensory experience and are syncategrammatic, he seems to entirely ignore the possibility that grammatical concepts be indefinable, by which he means they cannot be explained in terms of sensory experience, because they are innate and are used in helping us interpret sensory experience. In short in his discussion of the five milestones of empiricism Quine was guilty of underplaying the role of non-empirical Kantian, or at least Chomskyan type knowledge. I am not arguing that the Kantian slash Chomskyan alternative is the correct explanation of the grammatical particles. I'm just noting that his empiricism is blinding him to an alternative explanation. And this blindness is particularly interesting to note given that Quine noted many times in his interactions with Chomsky that he had no difficulty with explanations which appealed to innateness. However, it is not within the scope of this particular blog post to discuss the evidence for innate syntax so I will not pursue the above criticism of Quine here. The key point to note is that while Quine agreed with Horn Took's movement from explanations in terms of ideas to explanations in terms of terms, Quine didn't agree with Took's analysis of grammatical particles. In the next section I will explore how Skinner deals with Took's analysis of grammar and Took's criticisms of idea-centric philosophy. Skinner and John Horne Took The French novel of the 19th century was possibly close to what I wanted and I reread Stendhal and Balzac. I was caught up in a renewal of interest in George Eliot and tried rewriting parts of Middlemarch and Daniel Deronda, replacing references to feelings with references to the actions from which feelings were inferred. It did not work. Mentalistic terms were like the abbreviations of John Horne Took, they were the products. Accurate reports of the same contingencies ran to much greater length. V.F. Skinner A Matter of Consequences p. 245. 1. 
F. Skinner began working on whether language could be explained behavioristically in the mid-1930s after a challenge set to him by the philosopher Alfred North Whitehead. For over 50 years after his discussion with Whitehead, Skinner at various times in his career worked on the nature of language. Throughout this 50-year period whenever he discussed language the name of John Horne took came up. In his 1947 lectures on language, later called the Hefferline Notes, Skinner briefly spoke approvingly of Horne Took's work. John Horne Took, Englishman of the 18th century, wasn't liked and was popped into jail once or twice by the government. He had one trial which hinged on the interpretation of the word that. This got him going and he wrote a book, he was a good behaviorist although he didn't know it. Skinner The Hefferline Lectures p. 21. Unfortunately despite speaking approvingly of Horn Took in the Hefferline Lectures Skinner didn't expand on what it was about Horn Took's work that he found impressive. Forty years later when discussing the evolution of verbal behavior, Skinner again mentioned Horn Took's work. An early effort by John Horn Took in the Diversions of Purley, 1776, has not been fully appreciated. That Took was not always right as an etymologist was not as important as his efforts to explain how English speakers could have come to say such words as if, but, or in. The Evolution of Verbal Behavior p. 120. It is no coincidence that Skinner's interest in Horn Took centered on his analysis of concepts such if, but, that, and etc. Skinner was also impressed with Quine's analysis of similar concepts in his elementary logic. In fact in verbal behavior where Skinner discussed Horn Took in most detail he notes that Horn Took's analysis of language was similar to Quine's analysis in elementary logic, verbal behavior p.342. It was in his verbal behavior, that Skinner discussed John Horn Took in most detail. Interestingly Skinner's discussion of the Took was along the same lines as Quine's. Skinner, like Quine, discussed Horn Took's criticism of Locke's inquiry into human understanding for being better thought of as being concerned with words rather than ideas. Skinner even cites the same passages from Horn Took read John Locke that Quine did. However, while Quine was careful to note that Took was primarily speaking about language over ideas because ideas were non-explanations, he also noted that we shouldn't read Took as denying that mental activity underlay verbal behavior. Skinner on the other hand read Horn Took as arguing that all thinking involved verbal behavior. Skinner then goes on to argue that Took is incorrect in arguing thusly and points to things such as mental imagery and spatiotemporal reasoning as a refutation of Took's purported views, verbal behavior p.449. Skinner and Quine's different readings of Horn Took are understandable. Horn Took is very articulate on what he sees as the problems with idea-centric philosophy. He also has skilled arguments for using terms and their analysis and historical development to make our philosophy more objective. But he says little, either positive or negative, about whether he thinks that there is cognitive apparatus underling the ability to use verbal behavior. So there is scope for both Quine and Skinner to differ in their interpretations of Horn took on this issue and little textual data to settle the matter conclusively. Another area where Skinner and Quine discussed Horn took was in relation to his treatment of grammar. Skinner was particularly interested in Horn took in relation to what he called autoclitics. Before proceeding to discuss Skinner's take on Horn took re-autoclitics I will need to briefly discuss Skinner's explication of the various different functional units that make up verbal behavior. A mand is a verbal operand in which the response is reinforced by a particular consequence, and hence is under the functional control of relevant conditions of deprivation or aversive stimulation, verbal behavior p. 36. In other words the mand is a type of response that is under the control of and singled out by certain controlling variables. 
A paradigm of a man is saying water when thirsty and receiving water in return, being reinforced for saying water. A tact is a verbal operant that is controlled by nonverbal stimulus. The child says doll in the presence of a doll and is reinforced. Used as a man the word doll would result in the child being handed a doll. But as a tact the child says the word doll in the presence of a doll and is reinforced by his peers, through praise, attention etc. An echoic is verbal behavior that is controlled by other verbal behavior. Thus the child repeats the word doll upon hearing the word doll spoken. Intraverbal behavior is behavior where verbal behavior is controlled by other verbal behavior, but whether there isn't a formal correspondence between the stimulus and response product verbal behavior p. 71. An example of echoic behavior would be one person saying the wheels on the bus and the other person saying the wheels on the bus. Whereas an example of an intraverbal behavior would be one person saying the wheels on the bus and the other person saying go round and round. Skinner uses intraverbal behavior to explain analytic truths. Thus 2 plus 2 equals 4 would be explained as an intraverbal where 4 is under the control of 2 plus 2. The autoclitic is a form of verbal behavior that modifies other verbal operands such as the mand, the tact etc. Skinner notes that there are different types of autoclitics. One type is the descriptive autoclitic which says something about the particular verbal operand that is used, so if you take the word heads this can be modified by a descriptive autoclitic as follows, I said, heads, I will say heads, etc. There are many different subtypes of descriptive autoclitics such an autoclitics with indicate my strength of belief in a verbal operand I have emitted, thus I could modify the tact the cat is black with the autoclitic of weakness, I hesitate to say, the cat is black. As well as descriptive autoclitic Skinner also discusses qualifying autoclitics, quantifying autoclitics and manipulative autoclitics. It was in relation to autoclitics that Skinner discussed John Horn Took's work. As we saw above Horn Took was concerned with explicating language in terms of nouns and verbs. Took believed that he could explain away the other aspects of language by analyzing them as being abbreviations which ultimately were nouns or verbs. Horn Took's method was drawing out the term's meanings through analysis, and explain how the terms have the form they did by tracing their etymology. Thus when analyzing the preposition through Horn Took analyzes it as deriving from the nouns door slash gate slash passage, his justification is dual. He shows how he can analyze common uses of through in terms of door slash gate slash passage and he traces the etymology of the term through to justify his analysis, divergence pp.180-183. Took's analysis is interesting and puts one in mind of the work of Lakoff and Johnson who analyze our languages deriving from embodied experiences to more abstract realms. Thus a common physical object such as a door or a gate that we have an embodied relation to are used in more abstract senses to think about more complex objects. It is not within the remit of this blog post to evaluate the truth of Took's analysis rather I just want to trace what Skinner and Quine made of Took's views. Skinner admired Took's analysis of language, however he didn't agree with Took's contention that all language could be reduced to verbs and nouns. As we saw above Skinner didn't analyze language in terms of traditional grammatical categories, rather he argued that the key to understanding language was to analyze it in terms of various type of behavioral functions, ments, tax etc. Skinner noted that Took's analysis was hindered by the fact that Took had no real understanding of the fact that some words were used to deal with other parts of language. According to Skinner, Took's abbreviations were just words which were used to manipulate nouns and verbs, and not grasping this fact held back Took's analysis of language, verbal behavior p. 341. What Took lacked was a conception of behavior as such. 
He was still under the influence of British empiricism and, in spite of an heroic declaration of independence, struggling against an enormous weight of tradition, took his talking about verbal behavior. He has disabbreviated the puzzling terms which cannot be accounted for as object words or by appeal to images terms which we would classify here as autoclitics and has found that they are verbs. This leads him to an important generalization which we could paraphrase in this way, some verbal responses are evoked by external state of affairs. These took wants to call nouns. Other responses are communication itself. They affect the listener and have no function aside from that effect. Took wants the listener to have no function aside from that effect. Took wants to call them verbs. Writing more than 150 years ago, he had no alternative, but a fresh formulation is possible today. Skinner Verbal Behavior P. 343. Skinner was impressed with Took's recognition that language had a dual function, referring to objects in the external world, and communicating about these objects via verbs. However, Skinner noted that as a thinker of his time Took didn't have a sufficient grasp of the various different functions of language and the social reinforcement controlling these behavioral functions. Both Skinner and Quine were impressed with Took's move away from Locke's idea-idea epistemology. Though they interpreted Took's move in different ways, Quine seemed to believe that Took's views were compatible with a mild form of cognitivism, but not of the sort that would vindicate folk psychology. While Skinner read Took as overplaying the linguistic nature of thinking. When it came to grammar both Quine and Skinner, while impressed with Took's work, had some reservations. Quine argued that Took didn't appreciate the contextual nature of grammar and erroneously tried to reduce them to sensory impressions and judgments about these impressions. Skinner on the other hand disagreed with Took's grammar because he didn't think that Took sufficiently appreciated the various different functions of language, nor the reinforcing contingencies that shape these functions. Skinner and Quine's different criticisms of Took aren't necessarily incompatible but they do illustrate their divergent interests. Quine the great critic the idea that our epistemic contact with the world can be purely cashed out in sensory terms, railing against Took's attempt to explain our linguistic capacities in terms of sensory experiences. And Skinner attempting to explain language behaviorally and functionally, admiring Took's attempts to step out of the Cartesian tradition he was trained in, but lacking an account of behavior powerful to complete the job. 1. Henceforth I will refer to the diversions of Pearlie as diversions. 